Uh, first off, good morning. My name is Stephen. If you are new here, this is your first time, or uh, maybe you used to come and you're coming back, whatever, uh, just want to say a big welcome to you. We're so glad that you decided to take this morning and to spend with us. Um, we appreciate that. Uh, once again, my name is Stephen. Uh, just also thank you to Josiah and Caleb for covering me this morning so that I can do this. Um, I don't do that often, but I always appreciate it, and I look forward to it, and I don't take it lightly. And so it's always an honor to be able to come before you, present the word. Um, and uh, so let's go ahead and stand, and we're going to start to read. We're in Mark 10, Mark 10, 46 through 52, Mark 10, 46 through 52. And it says, and they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he'd heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, come before you humbly because we need you. We don't do this as a formality, but we do it as life, God. Because we know that without you, we are dead. We are dead in our trespasses, we're dead in our sin, Father God. And so we ask that, God, that you would be glorified in all that we do and say and think today, Lord. Not just here, but the rest of our day, the rest of our week, the rest of our lives, Father God. We also pray that, Lord, we, that when we open your word, that, that you would speak to us, Lord. That it would be fruitful, that it would not go out and return void, but it would accomplish what it set out to do today, Lord God. We pray that we would have ears to hear, that we would have hearts to receive, minds to understand, and that Holy Spirit, that you would, you would work in our hearts where the ground is hard, that you would turn it, that it would receive your seed and that it would take root. We pray that Holy Spirit, you would water it. And so we pray that, Father God, that the most of all, that you, Jesus, would be lifted up, made high and glorious as you are, that we would exalt in you, that we would praise your name because it is worthy. And it's all of this we ask, Jesus, in your name, amen and amen. Please be seated. All right, um... So when I was thinking about this, uh, when I was a kid, one of my favorite activities, activities to do was to actually try to navigate through a room with my eyes closed. It was either that or just playing with a stick in the front yard, which I did both. But uh, after a few stubbed toes and some bruised shins, I learned something very worthwhile in this task, and it was this is that the more I focused on studying my surroundings, what was before and around me, 
and really took that into my mind, really took that into my heart, the more I was capable of actually succeeding because I could trust what was in my mind, because I had taken the time to study it, because I had taken the time to really, to really narrow in on those distractions and those things before me. And, uh, and I actually got pretty good at it. When I last had the opportunity to preach with you guys, uh, I shared regarding the transition Mark took, right? So from the feeding of the 5,000, it was a very big scale thing. And he shifted from that moment to focusing more on teaching his disciples, to being more intimate with them. And so in our text, we're, in, we're still in that, that place. He's still being intimate with the disciples. He's still teaching them. Less miracles, more teaching. I want to draw our attention to uh, a literary device that Mark uses as a writer, and it's called an inclusio, an inclusio. An inclusio is just simply this. It's a form, it's, it's a way of taking ideas and making bookends or brackets. And so what he does is he uses it to support repeating content. So for our study, the inclusio begins in actually 8.22, chapter 8, verse 22. That's their first bookend with the healing of the blind man. And our inclusio ends in 10.52 with the end of Bartimaeus. And so between these two brackets, we have various teachings from Jesus and even his predictions of his death. All of this comes on the heels of Jesus entering Jerusalem and ultimately his death as the Messiah. And so as we look at 1046, I believe that Mark is making a very poignant attempt at explaining what a true disciple should look like in regards to the life and death of Jesus. So I also want to make note, if you look at um, 822, so if you kind of look at 822 and then hold 1046 in one hand and the other, I want to make it worthwhile to point out that in our inclusio, both of them start the same way. So in 822, it says, and they came to. And then 1046, it says, and they came to. So once again, just kind of reiterating this inclusio, this book, and he's, he's making a point between these chapters. I also want us to notice that uh, he uses, uh, in the inclusio, he uses it in the word, the road. So when we get to the, the context of our story, we'll notice he's talking about the road, and that's once again a smaller inclusio in our big inclusio, okay? I also want us to make notice in regards to Mark's account is the details he adds. So Luke comes closest to similarity to Mark's account, but Matthew is slightly different. And we've been talking about how Mark, throughout his book, he's been very quick, right? He's using very fast language, like immediately and things like that. But he takes time to slow down the story and he adds some detail to it. And that's important. We need to remember that. So Mark's recounting of the story isn't focused on the healing itself. Okay, but rather on the very person and faith of Bartimaeus. For one, if you actually look at the story, notice the lack of exuberant response from the crowd. There isn't a lot of that. And in fact, if you look at the actual healing itself, it's very downplayed. It's very plain. There's not this great and glorious kind of thing that we had with the first blind man, right? It wasn't this over the top. It was just a very plain healing. 
which leads us to know that that isn't the focus. But what Mark does do is he highlights faith both in the cry of Bartimaeus and in Jesus' response regarding the healing. And so I'm going to start looking at um, our story. So we're going to enter scene one, scene one, and I've called this Jericho, a city of purpose. So our text opens with a statement of location. Jesus is approaching Jericho as he moves towards Jerusalem. And in our story, we have Jesus, we have Bartimaeus, we have the disciples, and we have a crowd. Those are our characters. And each will play a significant role in our story. Just a little bit about Jericho. Jericho is actually located 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Kind of gives you an idea. And Jerusalem is 3,800 feet above sea level. And Jericho is 840 feet below sea level. So for 15 miles, there is a grueling elevation increase. Okay? So there's, there's this massive gap. And in fact, quite often, that's why you read they were going up to Jerusalem. Because it was a very physical going up. Uh, historically, due to its location and design, Jerusalem is actually a very well-fortified city. One being on an elevation, but also because of its walls. And I want to come back around to this concept of Jerusalem being very well-fortified later, but I strongly believe that it is vitally important that Mark addresses this time Jesus spends in healing Bartimaeus just before entering Jerusalem. Put a little book on that. This is important. So let's look at our characters for a second. First, we have the introduction of Bartimaeus. The word Bartimaeus, the name, actually just means son of Timaeus. Pretty easy, right? Mark t- uh, takes careful attention to, spe- to specify a few things about him. One, we have his name and the name of his father. And this is important because it leads us to understand that the people of the time that are reading this letter, they would have known who Mark is talking about, okay? In fact, we can even surmise that they were probably believers at some point upon this reading. The church would have known them. Mark is also direct in pointing out both his physical condition, his blindness, and his social position, a beggar. So the details that we're looking at. So we know that he is marginalized. He is definitely looked down upon. And because of these two things, we find him at the gate of Jericho begging. Now, this is just before the Passover feast. And so Jesus is going to be entering the city even soon as the Passover lamb. And so all these Jews are coming into the city to celebrate. And so because of the time, they probably would have been a little bit more sympathetic to the needy people around, right? Kind of this idea of goodwill. Like, I feel good. I'm going in to celebrate. So let's have some, comp- some compassion. So as Jesus is entering the city and the crowds are following, Bartimaeus hears a great noise. See, Luke tells us that he asks the crowd for the reason for the noise, but all three Gospels acknowledge that as soon as he recognizes that it's Jesus, he does not withhold from crying out to him. Okay? 
He does not withhold from crying out to him. And this is the first place that I believe that Mark is addressing the faith of Bartimaeus. He hears that Jesus is near and he begins to cry out. I think you'd be safe to surmise that due to his blindness and his other senses would have probably been heightened, especially his hearing. But also because he's a blind beggar, it would have been easier for people to kind of just forget about him. He's off to the side. He's not really worthwhile to the makings of society at this time. And so it would have been easy for people to pass by him. And this would have allowed him to hear conversations, almost like a fly in the wall. And I'm sure at some point he would have definitely heard conversations amongst the people about Jesus. Right? Because people are starting to question. They've been questioning. Is this the Messiah? Could this be the one that we've been waiting for? So he would have been hearing this and taking it in. He would have also probably heard a lot of the contention, the anger, the hatred from the Pharisees towards Jesus. And so he's sitting as a blind beggar, taking this information and processing it. We often read the Bible in a flat plane. And what I mean by that is this, is that we kind of see it as just one-dimensional. We read it just words on a page. Um, But I think, to be honest, if we were to really envision this story right now with all these people coming through the city with Jesus, it's probably a little bit more akin to Johnny Appleseed. I mean, it is hundreds of people, and in the midst is Jesus. And they're reaching out for him. They're they're following him. They're, They're wanting to know more about him. It's chaos. People are, it's loud. You know, business is still going on in the city. And this is important to recognize because because due to his blindness, he doesn't know where Jesus is. He hears the crowd, but he doesn't know exactly where. And so Bartimaeus has to cry above the volume of the crowd. But he also has to do it as a blind man who doesn't know direction. So he's literally crying out into the air, hoping that it reaches the ears of Jesus, but he doesn't have any direction. And so it is with this cry that I believe he is hoping that this would be his moment for healing. Let's stop and think about that for a moment. See, there's debate regarding the way that Bartimaeus identifies Jesus in his plea. Okay, there are many believe that he hasn't any faith at this point, that he's only crying out to Jesus because he recognizes Jesus as a servant of God, not necessarily as the Messiah. So that's the debate. Is he the Messiah? Is he not the Messiah? Is Bartimaeus recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, or is he not? I personally don't believe that, and I want to argue why next. So we have Nazareth, a man, or a, a, um, a man from a town of ill repute. It's our next scene. First, Jesus is identified as a Nazarene, right? So he asks the crowd, who is that? And they respond to him, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was a small town that really seemed to have not a great reputation. To be associated with Nazareth was quite often a very negative one. So the first thing we know about the city is that, one, it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. 
In fact, the first time we hear about Nazareth is in Matthew 2, 23, right? In the prophetic about Jesus coming, the Messiah coming, right? And he'd be called a Nazarene. But what's interesting about that is, is that if, when you start reading up on this, uh, this idea of Nazareth, uh, people smarter than me have pointed out that uh, when it mentions prophets, it's in the plural, designating that it's not referring to a very specific reference. So that's why we don't have the prophecy of Jesus being for Nazareth in the Old Testament, because there isn't a specific one. But throughout the life of Jesus, okay, he's often referred to as being from Nazareth or a Nazarene, because one, it had identified him from other Jesuses. Believe it or not, the name Jesus was actually a very common name at this time. And so what identified him, this Jesus. But also through earlier prophecies in Scripture, we know Jesus would be despised and rejected. In John 1.46, right, we have Philip talking to Nathaniel about Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel's response is very telling when he says, Can anything good come from Nazareth. So we're already beginning to see this, this, this disdain for Nazareth. And I often wonder if this has something to do with Jesus' rejection. In Acts 2.45, we see a very clear understanding of the attitudes regarding Paul and the fellow believers. Right. So during a conversation between um, the leaders of the Jews and the, and the governor Felix, we learn that they viewed Paul as a plague, as one who stirs up the Jews, and as a ringleader of the Nazarenes. Obviously, this is a very derogatory statement. So my point is this. Upon hearing of whom it was, Bartimaeus does not withhold in identifying with Jesus a Nazarene. Stop thinking about that. He does not withhold from identifying with Jesus of Nazarene, which is interesting because that is the thing that Peter does not associate with when he's blessed by the woman before the crucifixion. Right? Surely you were, you were with him, the Nazarene. And he says, I don't know that man. He rejects that. But here we have a blind beggar who is willing to identify with Jesus, the Nazarene. Secondly, we see Bartimaeus' faith when he calls Jesus son of David. Now the term comes from the promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7. Okay? And it regarded an heir to be established as an eternal throne. It is an issue of birthright and of prophecy. Jesus is proven through Matthew and Luke's genealogies to be the legitimate heir to David. More than being the rightful heir to the physical throne, the title also encompasses the promised redeemer. So it's not just a physical king on a throne, but it's also the redeemer, the promised redeemer. So son of David is a pretty loaded term. And so once again, the question is this, is Bartimaeus recognizing Jesus as simply a servant of God or is he recognizing Jesus as the coming Messiah, as the promised Messiah? And this is the first instance. This is actually interesting. This is the first time in all of Mark's gospel that we actually hear 
this title, Son of David. Now, Jesus will pick it up and talk about it in chapter 11. But up until this time, we haven't heard this designation yet. What's also interesting is that any time previous to this text, any time somebody begins to talk about his Messiahship, what does he do? He quiets them. He tells them, don't talk about that. Go. But notice here that he doesn't stop. He doesn't silence Bartimaeus in what he's calling him. He doesn't shush him. Because Jesus knows that he's beginning to enter the very reason why he is here. He's on the heels of being identified as the Messiah. Ultimately, by the cross. But according to Old Testament prophecies, the Messiah would be recognized by his healing of the blind and the lame. And we see that in Isaiah 35. We see it in Luke. We see it in John. See, what's, for me, I personally actually have a hard time not connecting his use of son of David in a messianic sense as one coming from a blind person. So if, if Bartimaeus knew his Old Testament prophecies, if he's looking and waiting and hoping for the Redeemer, just like all other good Jews would have been, as a blind person, I have a hard time feeling or believing that he wouldn't have connected. This could be the Messiah, and the Messiah is known to heal the blind and the lame. Could this be my time? It's also no secret that Jesus and Mark use this idea, this concept of blindness and in, in, in seeing in relation to spiritual conditions. And so thinking back to the passages just before our pericope in chapter 8, we have Jesus addressing the disciples and their understanding of what it is to take place and how his people are to respond, right? He's talking about, hey, this is what's coming. Be prepared. This is what's expected. Right before or in chapter 8, he says, do you have eyes and not see? Right? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? This was a continual thing for Jesus. He says, you're missing it. And then what's interesting is directly after Jesus makes that statement, we have our very first example of a blind man being healed, which is the beginning of our inclusio. See, the irony is, is that the disciples that are physically capable of seeing continuously fail to recognize spiritual matters regarding Jesus, his coming death, and what the kingdom is. All while a blind man is bold in recognizing Jesus. In fact, the three times that Jesus brings up his coming death, it all seems to elude the disciples' understanding. Even the point where they say, I don't want to ask him because I'm scared. See, where I also see his faith is in his evaluation of himself. When he cries out for mercy, I believe this is his way of acknowledging his deep condition. There is great humility in this statement, unlike the crowd we will come to see. In fact, let's turn our attention to the crowd for a second. So they've been following for some time now, right? 1032 is actually very pivotal in showing the circumstances of the moment. 
it says they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. So Nate kind of hit on this a little bit last week, right? They, they get the idea that going into Jerusalem is death, and they wanted to avoid that, right? The disciples wanted the glory of the kingship, not the pain of it, right? And so, so they're trying to avoid all that, and yet somehow in all of this, a blind man sitting on the side of the road is perceiving that the Messiah would have to suffer, suffer in a way. See, this is important because this is the very last leg of Jesus' journey. He is focused and intent on seeing through what he has begun. Ideas of the Messiah would have been mixed during this time, but the idea that Jesus would go to die was definitely not one of them. Listen, church, do not let this one truth pass you by. That Jesus goes before us. Regardless of what our circumstances is, regardless of what we might be facing or how difficult the path ahead looks, Jesus goes before us. He goes with courage, he goes with determination, and he goes with victory. And so what I want you to understand is this is that follow him and do it closely because he is a great leader. And so turning back to Bartimaeus, we see him crying out over the crowd. And it's interesting because it says that they rebuke him. They rebuke him. They tell him to be silent. Uh, rebuke here means a disproval. Okay, there's, there's two different words for um, rebuke, and there's one that actually leads to guilt and to conviction. This one isn't that one. This one is um, to place honor upon something or someone and then to find fault somewhere else. So it's in a sense of using a measuring rod, okay? So, so really what's happening is this, is that uh, the people are giving a very emphatic, shh, you aren't worthy, okay? See, the crowd is seeking after Jesus. They're following him, they're pursuing him. And they're placing a measure of honor upon Jesus, but they're finding this, uh, Bartimaeus dishonorable in comparison. They are judging his worth, they are weighing his position in society, and they are observing his physical attributes, and they are finding him not to be worth Jesus' time. Let that sink in for a moment. People pursuing Jesus for their own need because he is worthwhile to them are withholding a person access to Jesus because they regard him as invaluable, even a nuisance. Let me say that again. People pursuing Jesus because they value him are keeping somebody away from Jesus because they are disvaluing them, because they are not measuring up in their eyes. I shouldn't have to preach this, but the truth is, is that we can do that, church, can't we? 
whether it's intentional or not, we can keep people away from the truth of the gospel. We can keep people away from Jesus. We can be so invested in our own needs and our own desires, right? That almost in a sense, we kind of forget about the other people. We're focused on Jesus for us that we don't think about Jesus for other people. And we can do programs and we can do all these things that make us feel good that in reality don't lift up the blind and the lame and the needy. I'll let the Holy Spirit work that one in you. Or you know what, maybe? Maybe they're actually seeking to protect the honor of Jesus. Right, almost like crowd control. Maybe they're seeking to protect Jesus and so they're kind of keeping the riffraff out. We've already seen the disciples do this once with the kids, and now we're seeing the crowd do it with Bartimaeus. As I had mentioned earlier, I believe that what is happening here is vitally important because, one, the last verse before our story here is Jesus' statement, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then we have him serving. But I want you guys uh, to look, so... Keep your place here in Mark, and I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. And there's something very interesting in the, uh, the life of King David. So 2 Samuel chapter 5, right? It says, all the tribes of Israel came to get, uh, David at Hebron and said, here we are. Your own flesh and blood, even while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led us out to battle and brought us back. The Lord also said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king in Hebron. King David made a covenant with them at Hebron in the Lord's presence, and they anointed King David over Israel. And he reigned for 30 years. Uh, uh, David was 30 years old when he began his reign and reigned 40 years. Jump down to verse 6. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem against the Jebusites who inhabited the land. The Jebusites said to David, you will never get in here. Even the blind and lame can repel you, thinking David can't get in here. Let me just pause there for a second. So remember, once again, we talked about Jerusalem being elevated, is well fortified, right? Jebusites are living in the city. David is anointed king. One of his first things he does is goes take back Jerusalem. He approaches the wall, and the Jebusites are so confident in the, in, the, in the foundations of the actual city that they're teasing David. They're taunting him. They're saying, guess what? We're so secure in here that even the blind and the lame are guarding us. And so I love this. So seven, yet David did capture the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. He said that day, whoever attacks the Jebusites must go through the water shaft to reach the lime and the blind who were despised by David. And for this reason, it is said the blind and the lame will never enter the house of uh, this house. And so David took up residence in the stronghold, which he named the city of David. Why this is interesting is this. So our, our series is called Mark when a king stoops to love. And I know that word stoops is kind of like, oh, kind of negative. 
But really, the definition of stoops is to bend the body or a part of the body forward and downward sometimes, simultaneously bending the knees, uh, to walk or stand with a for, uh, forward inclination of the head, body, or shoulders, and then to descend from superior rank, dignity, or status. Now, we actually have a doctrine that regards this very thing in, in light of Jesus, right? The condescension of Jesus, right? So the idea here is this, is that Jesus, right, the king, is stooping to love, right? He's, he's bending down, he's loving and unlovable at this time. And why this matters in relation to 2 Samuel is this, is because is that, that we saw David, right? He saw the blind and the lame as just a stepping stone to get into Jerusalem. And he despised them so much, he said, you're not part of this city. And why this is so important is because of this. We have Jesus about to enter the city of Jerusalem. Even being paraded as a king, And yet, instead of rejecting the blind and the lame, he heals them as the Messiah. And unlike David, he shows that the kingdom extends and includes the lame, the blind, the outcast, and even Gentiles. Don't miss that. This is a very important moment in history right now. As Jesus goes to reclaim Jerusalem, right? As the as the king. But he doesn't do it over the bodies of people. He stoops down, he lifts them up, he heals them, and he brings them into his kingdom. And so Bartimaeus, giving no mind to the crowd, cries out all the more. There are three things I want to draw out of this. One, Bartimaeus knew his condition. Two, Bartimaeus knew Jesus could save him. And three, Bartimaeus would not allow anything to detract his opportunity to connect with Jesus. What's beautiful in this is that Jesus is he's using the, the crowd and the life of the individual within his ministry. So in the midst of the noise and the chaos, Jesus hear, he hears the cry of Bartimaeus and he stops. So in the midst of hundreds of people and the chaos was going on, Jesus hears and he stops. He focuses on the one in the midst of the many. This reminds me of the psalmist's confidence when he says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. And in James 4, 8, it says to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's about this proximity, moving close to God. He doesn't just stop but he also tells the crowd to call Bartimaeus to him. Don't let that escape your attention. Jesus uses the crowd that was just willing to keep someone away as an active agent in his ministry. So once again, I don't have to preach this, but us, the church, as broken as we are, God calls us into his ministry. It's not our ministry. It's his ministry, and he desires deeply to use us. There is a reality to the Christian life, and that is this. It is individual and yet corporate. Our faith is personal, and yet we as a body are expected to help one another on the journey. 
But notice how quickly the demeanor of the crowd turns. Right Before, it was a very emphatic, be quiet. And now they're backpedaling. Right? They turn to Bartimaeus and they're saying, take heart, get up, he's calling you. I love that because in take heart, this term take heart, be encouraged is, is used seven times in scripture. Six of those times come from the mouth of Jesus. The seventh time is from the crowd. And more often than not, in Jesus' command to be courageous, it always preludes a miraculous moment. Something big is about to happen. And so Bartimaeus hears this call, and he, without hesitation, he gets up. In fact, look at how Mark describes it, right? It says that he casts his cloak, and he springs up. This is the response of a passionate expectation to receive what has been longing for. Why is this significant? Because one, the cloak was the outer garment. Uh, It was a coat, it was a bed, and it was a vessel. For a beggar, it was a way to collect gifts. For Bartimaeus, it was a possession, but also a means for living. We don't know if he actually had it on him or if he had it laid out for collections, but the fact of the matter is that he disregarded anything that could potentially come between him and Jesus. In fact, it would, be, uh, it would not be unreasonable to believe that, that if he wasn't expecting his healing, he would have done everything he could to keep that cloak close at hand. Because once again, it's part of his living. But because it was just before the Passover feast, here's the thing, think about this. It would have been expected to be a lucrative time for him. So at this moment, right, Uh, Bartimaeus has the decision he can either cry out to Jesus seek his healing or he could say man what I make this weekend is kind of double what I make normally like this is a good time for me so there could have been in the back of his head this slight I don't know I don't know if it's worth it this is kind of a big payday to give up More than that, we can view this as an issue of identity. For so long, he has been known as the blind beggar. The cloak could represent his shortcomings and a deep need. And don't be fooled, he is feeling his need right now. Matthew mentions two blind persons, but Mark focuses on one, Jesus turning to Bartimaeus in his personal singular plea, Lord, have mercy on me. And so we approach our next verse in 51. And this is an opportunity for faith. Jesus is the best at asking questions, is he not? He's really good at it. But the cool thing about it is that that the questions he asks are never for him. It's not like he forgot. You know, hey, can you remind me really quick? The questions are always for us. And so Jesus asks the same question he had asked the disciples just earlier. What do you want me to do for you? And what Jesus is doing is providing an opportunity for them to express their faith. And so Bartimaeus responds with, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Now there are different words for rabbi. And rabboni here is only used twice in scripture. The first time is here. The second time 
we see it is actually with Mary in the garden at the resurrection. And he's in the garden and she's there and she hears Jesus call her name and she turns and she says, Rabboni. Now, there are three different ways of saying rabbi. This Rabboni, uh, though it means teacher, is, is, is a, a bit more respectful. It carries higher honor with it. It's, it's more intimate. And so in using this, I believe that Bartimaeus is once again revealing his dependent faith upon Jesus more than simply as one that can just give him his healing, but as something very deeper. More than that, I believe he is identifying himself as a follower, as a disciple. He's putting himself under the leadership of Jesus. And so Jesus responds with a simple, go your way, your faith has made you well. Man, you would expect a far different response, right? I don't know, like we've talked, like previous miracles had this kind of like hoopla and uproar and all Jesus says is, hey, go, go your way, your faith has made you well. Okay. So let's talk about this word faith for a moment. The idea of faith has such an elusive and ethereal concept today. Right? We use the the word faith in almost like a like a cloud, like it's just kind of out there. Right? But here in scripture the term means conviction, it means persuasion, it means reliance or trust. Faith is concrete in the sense that it is founded on a belief that is convincing and effective. See, I determine to sit in a chair because I observe and conclude that they are capable of supporting weight. So my faith is placed within the strength and security of the chair and its ability to sustain me. So we have been seeing glimpses of Bartimaeus' faith throughout this story, and Jesus isn't saying that his faith was the power that causes healing, but rather that it was the instrument in which it was apparent. That is why it is important that when we present the gospel message, it is clearly defined that so when a person when a person places their faith in, is capable of supporting it, of carrying it. See, there are people that push back and they say, yeah, you know what, well, when was he actually saved in the story? Was it when Jesus finally announced, hey, your faith has saved you? Is that the point? See, I believe that there is so much happening behind the scenes in the life of a person, in the heart, in the mind, in the soul, that our finite minds can't comprehend. Yeah, we look at it on our side and we say, I made this prayer, right? I said this prayer and uh, I'm saved, right? We see it from this side, but I believe, right, when Scripture talks about uh, that we are dead in our sins, that, dead, that, that word necros is literally cadaver, we are dead, <laughs> right? But we are also enemies of God. There's no desire in us for him. And so when we look at these concepts of who we are outside of Christ, we really need more help than we realize, we're physically actually not even capable of seeing the beauty of Christ in the gospel. Our eyes are scaled. And so I believe that we're seeing Bartimaeus' faith throughout the story. 
I think he's taking what he's heard and learned about the Messiah over the years, and he's starting to apply it, not like the disciples. We can talk about salvation in a few different ways. So we can, refer, uh, we can, we can talk about uh, salvation as I am saved, past tense. We can say that I am being saved, present tense. And we can say that I will be saved, future tense. And what this is, uh, why this is important is because this is that when a, when a person places their faith upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, they are redeemed and they are made new. Don't worry about that. It's done. They are positionally placed in the family of Christ and sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. They are saved. But scripture also talks about the process of sanctification or being made into the image of Jesus. It's the life that is learning to die to itself. And eventually there will be a day when all of those in Christ will be finalized in their glorification. The term here for salvation is actually sozo, the word sozo, and it means to rescue from great peril, but it can also mean to heal or to make whole. It is both used of physical and spiritual attributes. In other words, the life of the person declaring you are the Christ doesn't just stop there, but seeks to come under the direction and leadership of Christ throughout their life until all things are complete and involves becoming a disciple. So just after Jesus speaks of his death and resurrection at the end of chapter 8, we have this call to the crowd. And he says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. And so to begin to wrap things up, turning back to our inclusio at the beginning of the text, we find Bartimaeus on the side of the road. But now at the end, we find him on the road following Jesus towards Jerusalem. Even though there are those that think he is simply joining the crowd for the Passover feast, I actually believe Mark is showing us that he has chosen to make his faith more than a profession, but one of a lifestyle. He perceives the road ahead, even in his blindness. He understands that it's going to be hard and grueling and difficult he understands that going into Jerusalem is death, but he's willing to get behind Jesus and follow him. We've all met or heard of people that they say they believe in God or even Jesus, right? But there's never any follow-through. It's just lip service. I don't think Peter is actually doing this because the scripture says that Jesus says that he didn't think of this on his own accord. It was the Holy Spirit. But, but quite often I think of, of Peter, right? And Jesus says, hey, who, who are people saying that I am? And who do you believe that I am? And Jesus says, you're the Christ, right? So Peter makes his declaration with his mouth, but then he still struggles to comprehend what exactly that means. He stumbles he, he wants the kingdom, like I said, but he doesn't want what brings the kingdom. See, the call has always been the same, to follow Jesus. And it is difficult and it is costly. It is a present, continuous pursuit 
under the leadership of Jesus that involves death and life. So we get the honor as believers to celebrate the Lord's table or communion. And uh, what I love about the communion is, is that it encompasses this, I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. If I can have the elders come forward, we're going to start to pass this out. And, and, and what I mean by that is this. So we have, right, we have the command, right? Do this in remembrance of me. So when we take the elements, we take the blood, and we take the, the cracker, right? We're holding it, and we're looking back behind us at the cross, at the finished, completed work of Jesus, okay? And that is our hope. That is our foundation right there. And so we, as a believer who's putting our faith in that, we get to declare, I am saved. Not of myself, but the work of Christ. So we remember, we look back, I am saved. And then we take the elements in the same hand and we say, but you know what? I'm being saved right now. Paul even says, he says to the Corinthians, he says, hey, this isn't a meal. When you come to the Lord's table, eat before, right? But then he says, everyone ought to examine themselves and address that sin. Don't take it lightheartedly. And so we have this position right now, well, I am being saved right now in the midst. And we take the elements and we look at it and we say, okay, where am I not measuring up? Where am I not like Jesus? Where's there sin in my life? Where am I falling short? Where do I need to allow the Holy Spirit to speak into my mind and my heart and my life? What do I need to deal with? And then we take the same elements and we look ahead. Because Jesus says, I will not drink of this cup until I'm with you again in my Father's kingdom. And so for us, there's a future hope. Once again, it's not based on us. It's based on the past, right? The cross, the established foundation of Jesus and what he has done for us. And we look forward with the elements in hand and we say, there's more to come. I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. And so as the elders hand it out, we're going to just take that time, we're going to think, we're going to ask, you know, where am I? If you're new here today and you don't know Christ and you've never made that prayer, you're not following Jesus like we just talked about today, then I would encourage you even say, don't take that communion. Because the truth of the matter is, it doesn't matter to you. It doesn't do anything for you. But the call is the same, right? Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, come to me. He's welcoming you. So if you need to, to come to Jesus today, we have the elders, cry out to God, make that profession, choose to follow him, and let us celebrate with you. On the eve of his rest, he was the disciples' last meal. And he takes the bread and he breaks it. He says, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood spilt for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're going to sing one more song, uh, just as a response, as a praise. 
Once again, if you need prayer, we have the elders here. If you don't know Christ, we'd love to talk to you. If you're new here, we'd still love to talk to you. Be blessed, church. When we're done singing, you're free to go.